Hi, I'm Anita Varting, a partner at Portland Communications. I'm a former government special advisor who worked in the heart of government across five departments, including the Department for Work and Pensions, the Ministry of Justice, and the Cabinet Office for the de facto Deputy Prime Minister, David Liddington. Now, I like to think I know a little bit about the highs and lows of working in government, but my experience is nothing compared to the man joining me today. Gavin Barwell, now Baron Barwell following his elevation to the House of Lords, a former MP and the former Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister Theresa May. He's now a two-time author and has written a tremendous new book, Chief of Staff, an extraordinarily candid, and in my view too critical, account of his work behind the scenes in those two tumultuous years from 2017 to 2019. He's here today to talk about what it's like to be in number 10, how business should talk to government, and the relationship between the Conservative Party and business. This is To The Point. Hi, Gavin. Hi, Anita. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So let's take ourselves back to that 2016-2017 period. I guess like your boss at the time, Theresa May, your political legacy was changed profoundly at the snap election in 2017. You know, Theresa May lost a majority and you had been housing minister and the MP for Croydon Central and you lost your seat. And then in what I consider to be a very astute move, you were appointed chief of staff. How did that feel at the time? Well, it was kind of a weird 36 hours to live through because you, you lose your seat. And as a, as a virtue of losing your seat, you lose the ministerial job as well, right? So I, I was a really lucky person. I had these two jobs that I absolutely love, MP for my hometown. And you all know from, from your time in government, lots of people get made minister for things they don't know anything about or don't particularly <laughs> have an affinity for. But I was really lucky. I'd been made, it was like my dream ministerial job, housing minister. So you lose both of those. You're absolutely devastated. And, and then literally, was, I think it was just over 24 hours from the result being announced in the early hours of Friday morning, Prime Minister calls you up and, and offers you this amazing alternative job, which I would never have expected that I was going to you know, do that because I was in elected politics. Uh, so it was, yeah, a really sort of weird period of time. There were, there were quite a few friends who had not sent me the commiserations text before they had to then send me the congratulations text. It was... Yeah, odd. And was there a part of you that thought about saying no? No, I, I think if you if you love politics and you've sort of devoted your life to it, if the prime minister of the country asks you to come and work for them right at the heart of government, I mean, I think a lot of people on the outside don't perceive just how crucial that role is. That you you see everything the prime minister sees. You have more access to what the British state is doing and knows about than the chance of the exchequer or the foreign secretary. You're right, right there at the heart of government. So I don't think anybody who, whose heart is in politics and, and has a passion for it would turn down that job if, it, if they were offered it by someone who they you know, had an affinity for and believed in. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't. Um, and so how closely did the actual job resemble what you thought it might be when you said yes in that moment? So I had no real idea what the job would involve. And actually I asked the prime minister, is there a job description? And she, she sort of said, well, no, like, you, you know, you sit outside my office and you give me advice. So I didn't probably have a lot of preconceptions other than that 
you would need to sort of function like the Oracle at Delphi, that, that people would come to you and say, what does the Prime Minister think of this? Or I'd like to do this. Do you think the Prime Minister would be okay with that? So you, you clearly need to know the mind of the Prime Minister because, again, you'll know senior ministers and senior civil servants are very respectful of the privacy of the Prime Minister. They don't all just ring the Prime Minister up every hour of the day, but they're much less respectful of the privacy of the Chief of Staff. So this like long queue would form at my desk of people wanting to know what the Prime Minister thought about uh, X, Y, or Z. So that was the one thing I think that I knew was at the core of the job, but there were other things that, that came up in the two years that I would never have anticipated. Yeah. You're like a kind of human Swiss army knife, I would say. Absolutely. And people say, oh, you're no days the same, but in government, no day really <laughs> is the same. Um, and actually, one of the things that struck me, both reading the book and kind of working, you know, with David Lidington and fellow spads in the cabinet office, how much bandwidth during that period was taken up with international discussions and negotiations. But did you keep that in the book in part because it's what everyone wants to know about? Or do you feel like it was an accurate reflection of the split between Brexit and absolutely everything else. So I think that the book as a whole is a fair reflection of how the Prime Minister and I spent our time during those two years. So Brexit was always a big chunk of it and became completely dominant towards the end. Other sort of international engagement was another big chunk and that didn't leave a huge space for domestic stuff. And there is a, there is a kind of paradox here, which is that people get to number 10 often really focused on what they want to do domestically, what they want to do to the economy, to the health service, to our school system, to tackle crime, to improve the environment. But once they get into the job, they end up spending more and more of their time dealing with international issues because I think prime ministers have become more and more preeminent in foreign policy compared with foreign secretaries over time. So, like you know, what obviously not true now that we're not in the EU, but European councils, UN general assemblies, Commonwealth summits, NATO summits, bilateral visits to other countries, people, other heads of government coming to the UK to visit you, all of those things soak up a significant chunk of prime ministerial time. And if there's a crisis, then, you know, if you think, if you think about the poisoning of the Skripals in Salisbury, mm. there's a huge amount of work the prime minister then has to do to try and mobilise international support behind whatever course of action he or she is trying to deliver. So they they come into the job very focused on domestic policy and what they want to do on domestic policy, but they get pulled away from that inevitably in the job. And so in that context, how does domestic policy get formed? How What role does number 10 end up playing? And how early does number 10 get involved in that process? So I think it's very variable. There, there are some domestic policies that are driven very much from number 10. So if I think about my time, uh, the long-term plan for the NHS, the significant uplift in NHS funding was very much something the Prime Minister decided that she wanted to do and some pretty fraught negotiations with Philip Hammond and the Treasury to get to the final result and then with uh, Simon Stevens and NHS England in terms of what were the reforms that were going to go alongside that extra money. But there are other issues where domestic departments will be very much uh, driving policy and, and they'll be just coming to the prime minister to check the prime minister is happy uh, with what they're trying to do. And then there's probably a middle category, and you'll, you'll know this from your time working with David Lidington, where the prime minister might devolve to, to a sort of de facto deputy the job of squaring off any rows there are between different departments about some issues. So 
Yeah, I think you can probably band it in those three categories. Some things that are just being driven by the relevant department and they're just really coming to number 10 to check everything is okay. Some things where you might have a deputy who is kind of doing some troubleshooting and a few key priorities that are being driven from number 10. Yeah, and I'm trying not to laugh because I remember those rows very, very well. And I think David was fantastic at being able to get everyone round the table and getting some agreement in the end. Yeah, natural diplomat. Yes, absolutely. Um, so here's the question that I imagine businesses really want to know. If they want to stop a policy from coming up, let's pretend that they, those are the kind of big three categories of policy. How do they go about doing it? Should they be focusing so much on number 10 or the treasury? Should they be focusing within the department? So I, I don't think there's a, there's a single answer you can give to that because it depends upon the issue. The first thing I think I would say is that businesses need to understand why the government has the policy, that whatever this policy is that they don't like, why is the government doing that? Do they understand the motivation that is driving the policy? Because sometimes it will be something that the, the Secretary of State for that department is personally very committed to. Other times it might be a policy that they've just inherited. You know, Someone decided this three or four years ago and it's still kind of trundling down the tracks. Sometimes it might be something that they have to do because of some uh, international agreement or maybe it's some kind of tense internal negotiation and actually there are people in the government that don't like the policy. Um, so understanding the dynamic within the government that is driving that policy is really important. And then I think just turning up and saying we don't like that and we want it scrapped is never a very good strategy. You're much better if you can go and say, look, there's an alternative. If you're trying to achieve X, there's a better way that you could do this, which would be this way. And then I think engagement, I would encourage people to engage both at a political level and at a civil service level. Uh, if you if you want to get uh, change through, I think, you know, the, the political advisor network can definitely be useful to businesses. Uh, I think any good government needs to have somebody who is in charge over all of relations with business. So... When I came into number 10, we didn't have that right at all. You know, the business thought Theresa was quite an anti-business politician, which she wasn't, but th mm. she had that reputation. And we appointed William Verica to lead business re relations. And I don't think we got everything perfect, but we definitely, that made a step change for the better. So hopefully any government will have a figure like him that you can use as a sort of docking point into number 10. But you also need to be engaging with the with the political advisors and with the civil servants in the relevant department who kind of own the policy as well. I think if you always try and use number 10 to get around the departmental policy you don't like, that's going to cause frustration long term. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. And I would say that there is a bit of a myth, I think, sometimes in the sector that you just need to kind of get a spad on board or you just need to get kind of one minister on board. And actually a lot of the detailed policy work is being done at official level and they will be making a detailed case for their reforms. And I think thinking about government like a giant tankard that's going in a direction helps you to understand that it's a mammoth task and undertaking to get it to turn in any direction other than the one it's already going in. Right. And, and so, yeah, Understanding that it's not one size fits all and understanding some of those dynamics at play means you don't miss out on any of those opportunities to influence policy as it moves forward. And obviously, um, so first of all, like government is doing thousands of things at the same time. 
right? Right now, the government is thinking about preserving fish stocks in the North Sea, girls' education in developing countries around the world, how to reduce road traffic accidents. I could list off literally thousands of things the government is simultaneously thinking about. Ministers and the prime ministers are not thinking about all of those things. They've got certain priority areas where they're trying to push. So sometimes liaising directly with government can be the answer, but sometimes talking to MPs, running campaigns in the media, raising the salience of your issue in a public way can be a way of putting effective pressure on a government to rethink what it's doing. So let's delve a little deeper into this question about the relationship between business and government. So this is the party conference season. Um, I know, Gavin, you you popped up um, for a very short while at one of the party conferences and the narrative right now is very firmly focused on the ways in which the conservative government in rhetoric is changing the way it talks about business. And it's very hard to forget the infamous F business um, from a few years back that has in some ways worried and defined the way that business sees this government. So first question, businesses are often frustrated by how little government appears to know and understand of their business and their concerns. Are they right to feel that way? Yeah, I think they're two very different worlds that work in different ways and neither understands the other very well. That's where my job comes in, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So it is to the benefit of ministers if they have a better understanding of how their policies are influencing behaviour at the coalface, you know, if you're quasi Kwarteng and you're trying to drive forward this green industrial revolution, understanding what kind of policy framework is going to encourage the private sector to invest heavily in the infrastructure that we're going to need to decarbonise our economy is hugely useful to him and to his officials. And likewise, I think for businesses to understand the policy challenges that ministers are thinking about, the constraints that they're under when they're making decisions can help when you're trying to suggest alternatives maybe to the way that they're doing things at present. So the problem is of two worlds that don't understand each other very well. I would say, I mean, look, you you quoted that remark that the prime minister said in the past. That isn't his attitude to business. Completely. Yeah, that, so that comment was... That comment was born out of a frustration with business's attitude to Brexit. All right, now I'm not defending it, and I had a different view on him than Brexit, but I think it's important to understand the context of the remark. But what I would say is that this Conservative Party is not as free market, unashamedly pro-business as the sort of Thatcher governments were, or even the Cameron government was. And we saw that at the party conference this week. You know, politically, the government is in a space of saying to business we're going to make it difficult for you to access the labour you, you want and we're going to try and drive you to make changes in what you have to pay in certain professions. And so there is quite, I think, quite a lot of frustration in the business community about some of the policies that the government uh, is pursuing. But I think understanding what its political direction is and why it's making the choices it is can help inform how you then uh, try and respond to what the government's doing. Yes, yes. And we absolutely have to talk about what's happened in the past couple of weeks in that regard. But just on that point that you made about the F business remark, I think that really matters because it speaks this point about misunderstanding. Um, And in part, I think businesses, you know, invest a lot of time in trying to understand government much as they struggle. Perhaps the same thing doesn't happen in reverse. I mean, we have fantastic people within the kind of business relations units in number 10. That is, you know, one element, but in terms of sheer numbers of people that are able to devote their time to talking to and understanding business, that is a challenge. And it feels like sometimes they're almost 
just speaking past one another. Um, so how would businesses kind of better persuade government to look beyond its current hinterland? So I, I think the, the starting point is if you're talking their language. So if you understand what ministers are trying to achieve and the conversation is about how could you better achieve your goals, then if you like, you're, you're providing practical help to them essentially. The thing that led to that infamous comment that Boris Johnson made was he felt that people were just trying to block the thing that he wanted mm. to do. And so that's when, that's when you get a sort of standoff and frustration, essentially. And there is, I think, one of the things that's interesting about the current government, perhaps prepared, compared to previous Conservative governments, is there is a little bit of sort of anti-establishment nature to it. So it's often quite resistant to sort of trade groups, lobby, the sort of existing status quo. And it's more interested in hearing from new startup businesses, entrepreneurs, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of that that goes on, I think, sometimes in the relationship as well. Yeah, this is where I out myself as someone who reads your tweets far too closely. <laughs> um, but you did reference a Tory MP at a fringe who said it would be no bad thing if the supermarket supply chains break and farmers started selling milk at village shops. Um, and your response was that the Tory party you joined believed in free markets. I mean, I presume that was in part a joke, um, but are you worried about that's no longer the case? Yeah, no, I, th- I, th- I look at that comment and I think, what is the world coming to? You know, of, co- of course, if you represent a rural constituency, there are concerns about the market power that the big supermarkets have relative to small farmers. And I, I, those, I understand those arguments and I sympathise with them. But the idea that what we should want to do with our economy is go back to the 1950s where everyone shopped at the lo- sort of local village, the co- village shop or the local corner shop, to the birds. The reason supermarkets have thrived is because consumers in their hundreds of thousands have found them convenient and affordable places to buy things. Um, And the government should not be in the business of actively trying to smash up the supply chains of businesses in this country, because it's not going to be good for the economy. It's not going to be good for people's jobs, and it's not going to be good for living standards. So I look at that comment and I just sort of think, you know, what kind, what, where is the Conservative Party if that is the message that it's putting out to the country? Yeah, I mean, I guess my take is, I, mean, I think maybe I took it slightly less seriously, but it's interesting that what we're seeing now is a massive political gamble, I think. Um, so I think, I, again, oh my God, I'm going to reference another one of your tweets, but it was a very good one, a uh, series of tweets about um, the relative high spending and high taxes of the Conservative government and how this will make things much harder for Labour, just as new Labour was a much harder opponent um, for the Conservatives. And I think we've seen that play out with national insurance contributions. But you could argue that we're seeing a similar dynamic right now. So you have the Conservatives position itself as a party that strongly supports high wages, improved paying conditions. Is that what's happening? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, let's, let's take the two issues separately. I think the quote I started with was a quote from Rishi Sunak from the March 2020 budget. So just before COVID was really Mm. upon us, where he actively boasted that government spending on on departmental spending, day-to-day spending, was going to grow at twice the rate of the economy. Now, there is no way that Geoffrey Howe, Nigel Lawson, or George Osborne or Philip Hammond would ever have boasted about that. They would have seen that as a bad thing, that the state was consuming resources much quicker than the economy was growing. And... This realignment that is going on in our politics has changed who's voting for the Conservative Party and it is having an impact on Conservative policies. And that's why I would say this is not as free market a Conservative Party as 
the one that I originally joined. Now, when you then come to uh, the issue that you were just referring to and what we saw this week in terms of migration, we've got a really interesting situation where both parties think the last two weeks has given them a massive opportunity. So the Conservatives think Keir Starmer has basically said what they should have done was let in 100,000 people to, to deal with these labour shortages and that they can use this issue of immigration politically um, against Labour at the next election. And Keir Starmer and the people around him think, you know, one I saw one of them quoted this morning in, in, in the email that I read, saying the Prime Minister has turned F business from a throwaway mark into active government policy. The, the, the policy decisions they're taking are not going to lead to a wide sort of uplift in pay right across the economy, but are actually going to have quite significant negative economic consequences. And I was interested to see a number of senior businessmen who campaigned for leave have come out and criticised where the government is now going on this issue. So politically, if you can position yourself as uh, wanting controls on immigration and high wages for British workers, of course, that's good positioning for any Conservative government. But the question is what the consequences are in terms of inflation, in terms of availability of goods and, and what actually happened. You know, the Prime Minister is going to have a real problem now if wages don't go up in real terms significantly, because he's now said this is the entire object of government policy, and that's the metric he's going to be measured against. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that this has always been a tension within the Conservative Party, and it goes back to, you know, the Corn Laws and the kind of protectionist versus the kind of market instincts of the two groups of the Conservative Party. And these questions and considerations existed also in the Cameron Osborne era. Maybe they had a slightly different policy solution, but there were debates about Uber, there were debates about Huawei and China investment. And and obviously we can't deny the importance of questions around um, competition, immigration, labour market in the EU referendum debate. So it feels like what we may be getting to is something that's much more about the language and rhetoric that this government is using as opposed to the policy prognosis that it purports to support. So for instance, are we going to see significant policy changes um, in support of the kind of higher wages or better market conditions, or is it going to be much more about the language and signal that it sends to business? Yeah. I mean, look, I come at this from a, from obviously from a particular position, but I mean, it seemed to me that over the last two weeks, the government has been struggling to explain the problems that businesses and consumers are having in our economy at the moment. And, you know, a number of people have tried to say it's all because of Brexit, which is clearly ridiculous. But you've also had a number of ministers coming on denying it's anything to do with Brexit. And the Prime Minister has now changed that line and kind of said, well, it is to do with Brexit, but this is a deliberate transition to a sort of higher wage economy. I think on the policy front, there are quite a few people in government that are uncomfortable with where the government has now placed itself. Now, if you look, for example, at the sort of culling of pigs that we're seeing at the moment because of the shortages in abattoirs, you talk to some ministers privately, they're, they're pretty uncomfortable about the impact that is having in rural communities. So these issues cannot just be rhetorical. Once you say something clearly and unambiguously, this is what the government is trying to do, you have to follow through on a policy response to that. And of course, the government is going to come under pressure now on level of minimum wage and enforcement because Labour are going to say, well, if, if you care about wages, there are things you can do straight away that would raise wages for some of the lowest paid people in our economy. So I think in politics, you always have to be careful when you think you're just taking a rhetorical position. 
you you can't just take rhetorical positions. Policy has to align with what you say. The government's got the same problem on levelling up, right? It, the Prime Minister defined levelling up as being about equalising economic productivity between the different parts of the country. He had that great quote where he was looking at that there are now a number of parts of our country where GDP per head is less than in East Germany, the former East Germany. You can't then say, oh, no, actually, it's just about kind of quality of life issues locally in communities once you've defined it in those terms originally. I think that's an interesting challenge. I do think that business in particular does tend to take very literally what they hear from government, because as you say, there's always this issue of kind of misunderstanding the two different worlds. But I I would hope that as we're moving to a situation where government and business are working much more in partnership, you know, we talk about things like net zero, that we might come to understand um, when government is issuing words that want to encourage business to act in a particular way, rather than saying, by the way, this is going to be hard-nosed policy pronouncements. And I wonder if the public minds that, that, that government can just say, well, this is what we'd like our country to look like, or this is what we'd like to see, um, without that necessarily the government taking on a huge interventionist role in delivering that. I think, I think, Look, you can sometimes be clear that we're not going to intervene, but that we would encourage people to do this. You can take that approach. It felt to me like the rhetoric over the last week was quite a bit stronger than that. Um, and I think how this issue plays out, a lot will depend on how these supply chain issues progress over time. If it proves to be a relatively short-term effect and thing, you know, the Prime Minister is obviously hoping that as we emerge from the pandemic and the global economy recovers, these things will sort themselves out then I think politically that's fine for the government. But if they persist, then it's going to become more and more politically difficult if the government doesn't have an answer about what to do about it. And voters, you know, if you take the petrol pump issue, mm. my experience is that most of the people I know who are not involved in politics initially thought, well, this is the media's fault. They've kind of ramped this whole thing up. They've promoted a degree of panic buying, and that's why we've got this problem. But if it draws on over a longer period of time, people will start thinking it's the government's job to sort this out now. So we'll have to see how these issues play out. Yeah, it's fascinating, though, that the government has taken such a big political risk. And, and I think it's a fascinating dynamic between the two political parties where the opposition, which ostensibly has nothing to lose because they've not been in power for a very long time and have to overturn an 80-seat majority, are taking very little risk and actually being forced into positions by the government. And then the government seemingly taking enormous swings, both in terms of NICs and in terms of... The this current conversation. Yes, I think that the, the the risk factor that the opposition has here is a sort of different one, that they are very nervous that when you look at their underlying critique of what the government's doing wrong, it prompts, well, basically you think this Brexit deal's wrong and you want to renegotiate it. And they're very nervous of being pushed too clearly into that position. You know, Starmer used the, the line about make Brexit work, but he doesn't want to get into the detail of what that means and what he would do if he was prime minister. So I think that's the nervousness for them, that if you if you lay the blame for at least some of these issues with Brexit, you then have to explain what you would do if you were in government to resolve them. And they, they see significant political risk for themselves in doing that, I think. Yeah. 
And to bring it back almost to our policy discussion, there's always a bit of a consideration uh, with businesses and those who are advocating for a policy um, that they know the government doesn't currently support. And that dilemma tends to be, should we activate the opposition or should we seek to persuade those who are in government? Um, and it obviously does depend on the issue. But by and large, do you find that knowing the opposition supports a policy just instantly turns you off and it irritates you to no end? <laughs> No, but I think you have to, at the moment, if you're in business, you have to be mindful of the fact that the government has a very significant majority. So just having the opposition on your side isn't necessarily going to help you turn things over. I think what would be more interesting is if you get a reasonable sized group of conservative backbenchers aligned with the position that you were trying to advocate. That's more likely, I would have thought, to shift where ministers are than having the opposition against them. But it's not like, if you think of the two years when I was working for the May government, we were essentially in coalition with parliament. We didn't have a majority. And so you had you had to take notice of what position Parliament was taking on an issue. This government isn't in that position. It's in a very strong position in Parliament. So uh, I, I would probably more focus on backbench Conservative MP opinion. That That's fascinating because I think in some ways policymaking was much more exciting in the, the May government. There were lots of policies like, for instance, things like FOPTEs, where it, the indication was the government wasn't necessarily on board with that reform, but didn't feel it had the numbers to drive through support. Contrast that with perhaps a vote in July over international aid, where, you know, you had a considerable number of, of former prime ministers and prominent parliamentarians lining up to say they did not support the reduction in the aid budget. But nevertheless, with some deft political footwork from the Chancellor, it ended up going through. Yeah. So I, I, I think in our system, of we haven't had a, a government with a strong majority like this for quite a long time in our politics. You're probably looking, looking back to the sort of 2001-2005 parliament, the last time you had someone in this stronger political position. Uh, and so the, even even if you've got a small rebellion, as you had on overseas aid, the government is capable of getting its way. Um, so I don't think they'll worry too much about what position the opposition takes unless their polling is telling them that the public is agreeing with the opposition. So it's kind of, it's either lobby backbench MPs or it's try and actually shift public, if it's a big enough issue where you can actually try and get the public motivated an issue. I don't think we've ever had a government that that so much listens to what the opinion polls are saying when it's deciding what it's going to do. So that clearly will have some influence. I was absolutely just about to say the exact same thing. I think this is the most kind of campaigning government um, that we've seen in, in quite some time. And also, I get the sense of government in a hurry. Um, and so actually could be whether responsive to arguments about pace and how long it's going to take to deliver on some of these commitments. If business is saying, by the way, this infrastructure or this outcome that you're looking for is going to take a significant lead time. I think that government would be interested in that kind of insight. And also, if if businesses are saying, we can find ways to put detail and flesh on the bones of some of these broad things that you've said you want to achieve. Again, I think those are interesting ways into a conversation with government. Yeah, I, I think I, I would struggle to think of anything the government would be more interested in hearing from business than how could we deliver infrastructure quicker. I, I can't think of a conversation it would be more happy to have than to hear thoughts about. Because on this levelling up issue, given the infrastructure is clearly going to play a significant role in, in delivering that, the danger the government's got is that it's going to take a long time for people to actually notice a difference from the policies that it's implementing. So it'll, it'll be very open to conversations about speed of delivery. Completely. And I think that supports probably my theory that I, the government isn't in the hurry for an election, but that's just by the by. I, yeah, I I've never really quite understood this 
argument. Um, we've got a boundary review going on at the moment, which is going to benefit the Conservative Party by about net 20 on the majority by the latest estimates I've seen. Those new boundaries. I've seen 10, but either well, way. So it's, it's 10 more seats for the Conservative, but therefore 20 on the majority because mm. you're taking 10 off the other side. And those new boundaries can't come into effect earlier than the autumn of 2023 at the very earliest. So I think the people who are sort of advocating for an early election, I don't really understand the politics of that. It's definitely, like if I was still in number 10, I definitely want the party machine ready in case there was a reason why we needed to have an election. But it, my, my basic scenario would not be going to the country until the boundary reviews are through. Yeah. And so why early? You could perhaps mean autumn of 2023. Yeah, autumn 23, not, spring 24, but not before exactly. that. Well, we are in agreement. We end the podcast <laughs> in agreement, Gavin. Um, thank you so much um, for your time and for your thoughts. Um, so you've obviously been kept tremendously busy writing your book. Um, what was the toughest thing about writing it? I think the hardest thing, the, the two things I struggle with, one, there's quite a lot of painful memories there. It, it's not an easy thing to write about really? because I start the book by saying, ultimately, it is a story of my failure. If you're, if you're the chief of staff to the prime minister, your job is to keep the prime minister in number 10. And I wasn't able to do that. I believe that's um, incredibly harsh, by the way. And I think, I think it's a very candid book, which I think it, it's, was great. It's harsh, but, but I think it's harsh, but ultimately true. <laughs> No, my, lots of people I say this to don't like it, but I think I, I think it's the truth. And I think it makes the book more real. Often political memoirs are trying to tell people how great, you know, you didn't really understand how great I was. I think by starting the book with that candor, it, it allows me to make some of the arguments I did want to make about some things that I think could be reassessed. The other thing that's hard when you write a book like that, I think, is how you write about people that you like uh, and respected but I had a difference of opinion with on a particular issue. It's not mm. difficult to write about people you completely disagree with or, or don't particularly like as people, yeah. but people that you get on with and respect, but maybe you had a, a difference of opinion with on a particular... A good example in, the, in my book is Philip Hammond, mm. right, who mm. uh, I like as a person, I respect hugely intellectually, but I can't write a book about those two years and say that he always made things easy. Um, and so that trying to pitch that in a way that told people the truth about what went on without upsetting people who you like and admire. That's probably, uh, was probably one of the other tough thing about it other than dredging through some difficult memories. Right. Um, so this is the question that we always ask people on our podcast, which is in such a busy and noisy world. And when you're kind of trying to get some headspace, perhaps from writing the book, um, where do you go? What do you do when you kind of need to have some space and, and think and come up with ideas? I think there's a lot to be said for physical exercise, for, for just sort of getting your brain away from the sort of chatter of day-to-day -day life. Uh, so when I was in number 10, if that's a way of answering your question, I tried to have five minutes every day when I just walked around the garden. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. A, I think for sort of mental health, like just get seeing, because I, otherwise I wouldn't have seen any daylight most days. Um, and B, it just gave me five minutes away from the queue of people at my desk where I could just kind of think about what happened that day and what we needed to do next. Um, but I think I, I'm not, I don't think I'm a person, I don't think I'm really well qualified to advise people about it. One of my, my teenage children tell me off for looking at my phone too much is one of the kind of behavioral tics wow. that I've got from my time in number 10 that I find it very hard to go more than an hour without checking 
my messages. So I think trying to find some time in the day where you do put the phone down and get outside and just go for a stroll, it, it does help to clear the mind and sort of allow you to focus on what's the most important thing to do next. Yes, I, I echo your sentiments about long days. I do remember the Meaningful Vote campaign in the dead yeah. of winter where we were kind of getting into the office tremendously early before the day even began and then leaving awfully late. Yeah, I used to, I mean, I used to be in there just before six most mornings because I found I could get two hours before the first meeting at eight o'clock when I wouldn't get disturbed and I could actually do some work because for most of the rest of the day, it would be very hard for me to do any work because I was either in meetings or you know, queue of people phoning me or coming to talk to me. So, you know, that is a job where you're almost inevitably going to be under working long hours and under enormous pressure. And you, you just do need to do things to give yourself a bit of space and protect your sort of mental health and well-being. Gavin Barwell, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Really nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.